Welcome to TSG Talk. TSG Talk aims to contribute positively towards the care of an injured casualty or vulnerable patient. If your goal is to maximise your input for the people you care for, then TSG Talk is for you. Our podcast will interview colleagues who are at the cutting edge of their professions. Often they're involved in creating solutions for areas that historically have proven difficult or have a wealth of experience in a particular complex response. Each podcast will provide unique, engaging content. At TSG Associates, we will always strive to ensure our solutions are ahead of the curve and positively impact on the quest for prioritising survival and minimising suffering. We believe TSG Talk will complement our vision and provide a platform to enhance your response. It is my pleasure to now pass you across to our host, Senior Partner at TSG, Colin Smart. Welcome everyone to the latest edition of our podcast, TSG Talk. On many of our podcasts, we explore the unique challenges of providing medical care in complex environments, and today is no exception. Providing care as part of a ship's medical team creates many challenges and scenarios for the personnel involved. Today, we will learn about the details of work involved and how they are addressed with the aim of providing optimal casualty care. We are privileged tonight to talk with Liz Barr, Lead Medical Consultant, Maritime Red Square Medical. So um, good afternoon, Liz. It's good to see you. How are you today? I'm good, thanks, Colin. Thanks so much for inviting me on to your uh, TSG talk. No, it's an absolute pleasure. And I'm uh, really looking forward to uh, our conversation this afternoon and just uh, really learning more about uh, the the ins and outs and the complexities of, of maritime medicine. I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, good stuff. I, I, I love it, but that doesn't mean everybody else does. So you'll have to stop me if I go on. <laughs> well, let, let's see if we can bring across that enthusiasm. And I'm, and I'm, I'm absolutely sure, sure that we will. Uh, just just before we actually go into the subject tonight, Liz, can, can you just give our listeners a, a little bit about, of your, your own background and maybe how you got involved in maritime medicine and, and what your experiences in that at the moment, uh, you know, since, since you've been involved in it? Sure. Um, I mean, those of you who, who who do know me already or that I've worked with will know that I come from a, a, an animal background. I used to work with horses and um, couldn't afford anything, couldn't afford rent, couldn't afford food. And uh, one day sort of thought I ought to grow up and get a proper job, which meant joining the Royal Navy. Um, and that actually uh, led me into medicine. Um, I didn't go in with the intention of becoming a medic. I went in with the intention of becoming a hydrographer because I was obsessed with maps. Um, but all they could offer me was medics. So I was like, yes, I'll take it. I need money. Mm. Um, joined the Navy, started studying medicine and and just found my my happy place. I absolutely mm. loved it. So um, when I when I went through my training, I went straight to sea when I qualified um, and I was deployed with frigates, which are the smaller surface ships. Um, so I spent a few years doing that and then I moved into shoreside medical support for minesweepers and fishery protection vessels and um, deployed units of personnel overseas. Um, then I moved into the world of the Royal Marines and spent a couple of years with them working with their frontline units, um, specifically in rehabilitation and return to fitness so that we could get people back to the front line. <clears throat> Um, and then I got sent back to sea again, which was my last ship's draft in the Royal Navy on a destroyer this time, okay. which was my favourite ship. Mm-hmm. Actually, I loved it. Um, so when I did that, that's probably about 10 years, I suppose, of my medical career. After that, I moved into the training area um, in the commercial sector of maritime medicine. 
Um, and I worked as a medical lecturer at Warsash Maritime Academy down on the south coast and uh, did that and learned all the complexities of commercial maritime medicine, which were so much more intricate than military maritime medicine. Um, and what happened from that is people would say, "Ooh, is there any chance you could come and do an audit on board? I'm not really sure if we're getting things right for, for compliancy reasons. So I started doing a few compliancy audits and clinical audits on board. And it just was one of those things that seemed to get a set of legs, grow them fast and disappear running into the horizon. Um, because suddenly people were saying, oh, I want some of that. And, and I just got asked so many times to do it. And I thought, oh, my God, I should do this for a living. <laughs> um, so I did. And that sort of took me into the world of um, onboard working. and. I was on I've been on everything now from cable layers to cruise ships from sailboats to super yachts and everything you can imagine in between uh, so you get a really good understanding of the different approaches to maritime medicine depending on the part of the sector that you're working within um, and I've always had a keen interest in how to apply the clinical best practice in a remote situation in less than ideal circumstances and one of the things about being at sea is that you have no recourses to definitive medical care, which is totally less than ideal circumstances. Um, so I found myself sort of thinking, right, how can I pull this together for people so that they're able to deliver the best clinical care that they possibly can in a resource limited situation without direct recourse to definitive medical care? Um, and with that, how can I help raise the standards across the board within the maritime sector so that they're much more even? Because there's a real discrepancy between the different sectors. So, yes. Yeah, no, <laughs> fantastic. What, what a fantastic background. And uh, it's, it's really interesting. Um, the, the one thing I picked up there and uh, I'll, I'll give you an experience I found myself um, where you say in the civilian sector is probably more complex than the than the military one. Um, when when I left the military, I, I worked offshore for a little while on, on the oil platforms. And I, I, to this day, I'll remember my first ever patient. I came in as a fairly confident young 20-something medic, thought I knew a little bit about what I was doing, which obviously I didn't at the time. Um, but the first man to walk in my sick bay was probably mid-50s, about four stone overweight with a, with a complex medical history. And I thought... I've never seen anything like this before. <laughs> and uh, it was just the diversity of the population I hit in the civilian sector was so different to the military. And and that's mm -hmm. the big learning curve I got. I, I was suddenly more into um, sort of primary healthcare than, you know, really coming from a trauma background, I suppose, where we were very focused on the military on. And yeah, I picked up on that. It's definitely the caseload is complete. Well, not, I wouldn't say completely different, but it's certainly got a difference to it, I would think. Um, was 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 certainly one of my experiences yeah i will never forget that day thinking help find me a boot <laughs> uh, i totally agree with you you suddenly find yourself in this world where you're not dealing with your sort of demographic of 18 to 40 year old fit healthy mm -hmm. um, military people yeah, yeah 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 so so just just moving on from that um could you give a little bit of an outline of what are some of the scenarios i, I, I know and i think obviously from you when you explained your background, you said it's an incredibly broad area that, that we are talking mm -hmm. about. But what are sort of some of the scenarios you're going to be faced with in maritime medicine? Um, and, and 
What is there any key to sort of training people up to to work in this area that that helps with those types of scenarios? I know that's quite a broad question, uh, but is there anything sort of specifically that you could hit on that that makes it that little bit different? Well, I think probably the first thing I would say is that we are liable for all the same emergencies that you would do if you were shoreside. Um, you know, some of the vessels are passenger carrying, so there's no medical requirements for them to be screened or certified fit for sea travel. So you have to be prepared to deal with everything that you would deal with if you were working on a frontline ambulance um, in the NHS service. So we do begin our training at that basic level of we have to manage a cardiac arrest, we need to manage other medical emergencies, chest pain, diabetes, seizures, um, major trauma. But as we progress, one of the things that we have to make sure that we can do is deal with what you just alluded to is that complex sort of needs, really. Um, I suppose when I'm looking at what we train and prepare for, I very much track the data that comes through from the protection and indemnity clubs, which provide the insurance cover for shipping companies. Mm -hmm. So we look at their data and, you know, we look at what are you seeing? going wrong on ships that causes a ship to divert that requires a medical evacuation with coast guard support and interestingly since i've been doing this now which is more years than i care to admit um the thing that we see the most of is chest pain um which obviously the majority of those are attributable to lifestyle factors uh, the second issue that we see is musculoskeletal, um, and a lot of that is degenerative, just normal degeneration of your musculoskeletal system. So wear and tear is, is how we refer to it. And then the third one that we see an awful lot of is kidney stones, randomly, um, or maybe not so random. As seafarers are very, very busy people. We have a lot going on. Um, our hours are irregular. Our sleep is not necessarily the best quality. And dehydration is a is a very real problem. And it's it is found that the dehydration is one of the major sources of their kidney stones. So we do very much focus on the things that we know are going wrong. But um, like yourself, being ex-military, I totally cut my teeth on trauma and I was a, a lover of the trauma. And I loved it because it's an algorithm and you follow it and you can make you can see visible change when you do something. And one of the things that I found since I first qualified to today is that health and safety is so much better than it used to be. Um, health and safety within the civilian sector in the, in the commercial maritime sector is definitely better than what I've used to experienced. So I don't see we don't see major trauma. It's just not a thing anymore. Um, and that has actually meant that we have to be very prepared for those primary healthcare issues. So what you were saying about going onto the rig for your first time totally resonates mm -hmm. uh, because we are dealing with people who've got high blood pressure or high cholesterol, or, you know, some of them are being diagnosed with diabetes and, and you're suddenly thinking, actually, there's a very real risk of taking you to see that if you have an event, we can't manage it. Um, and is that, is that the right thing to do for somebody to put them at risk? because we need them. Um, and what that also leads to is, for me, I have a, a, a new love, if you like, of communicable diseases and tropical diseases, mm -hmm. because we've also got the complex needs of people that have had a history of tuberculosis or other diseases that have, you know, rendered perhaps their lung function not as great. Mm -hmm. 
And then you couple that with the workload that we're expecting them to undertake, the environment they're going to be working in. And there's a vast amount of other factors in there. So all the training that we do has to help the learner understand how to assess for those sorts of things. And when you come out of that trauma, that lovely algorithm of trauma, you know, your C to E assessment, and I'm going to do this at this point and that at that point, and you put yourself into this sort of complex scenario of, well, there's so many facets to what could be causing your illness. And if I don't address them all, I might miss that crucial point. And sometimes they sit there and look at you and say, do I really need to find out if they're a smoker and a drinker and if they're stressed at work or at home? And I'm saying, but what happens if those are the risk factors that they've got? And that's the explanation for their chest pain. That makes them much higher risk than the chap who's got none of those risk factors, who's gone to the gym, started lifting weights that are too heavy and pulled a muscle. And that's why it hurts to breathe. Um, and because they're not seeing patients day in, day out, they don't have that luxury of skipping through some of the things that, you know, perhaps a more experienced medical professional might. So the training is really drilling into them. It is very much a flow chart that we use. This is the information you're going to start with. I always describe it to my learners as a jigsaw puzzle. And I say, when you're working on board a ship, um, when you see a patient, it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle. And I, so we, you know, I say to them, what's the first thing you do? When you get a jigsaw puzzle out and they're like, well, I find the corner pieces. And I said, right. So that's your patient's data. Who are they? When were they born? What nationality? What's their occupation on board? Um, you know, the basic information. And then you say to them, what's the next thing that you do? And they're like, right, well, I'd find all the side pieces and put those in. I said, that is our patient history. So that's us asking a series of directed questions, examining the body systems, taking vital signs, building a framework. And then they're like, but what about the middle pieces? And I said, that's the bit we can do a little bit of if we're really good. Mm -hmm. But mostly that needs to be done ashore in a facility where they have diagnostics and imaging. So we focus a lot on know your limitations. Do not try and diagnose somebody because you're not medical professionals and you don't have access to diagnostics. Mm -hmm. Learn to understand how to put together a really good story and learn how to assess your normal from not normal and just report that report that to a topside doctor um, or a coast guards doctor whoever whoever you're going to access so we train for every scenario through basically being able to put together a really good story and feeding that information to somebody that knows a bit more than we do no, fantastic. I, I really like that analogy of a jigsaw. Um, <laughs> it's, and, and I think that that's so important when you're, and I think you brought out the point really well, you're training non-medical people who don't do this as a living. Mm -hmm. And they've got to get, I've always found, I think when you're training non-medical people, you've got to give them a sort of something, some, some sort of hook they can hang something on to, to get a grip off, to take an unstructured thought process and put it into some level of structure. Mm. Um, and, and I think giving them things that's not medically, got no medical terminology to it. We're not calling it a primary survey. We're calling it a jigsaw um, <laughs> because well, I, I know what a primary survey is. But to them, that, that could be something in engineering that, that just completely throws them to get started. But I think giving them that simple thing, OK, I've got the jigsaw. Let's think about that. Now, how does that putting it together? I think that gives them something that they, 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 they can really get a grip of and start the process and probably be a little bit calmer, which I think is important. 
it does it does tend to work because the other one that we use quite quickly after that because um you'll know if you've ever trained non-medical people they're so desperate for a diagnosis they want mm. to tell you what's wrong mm. and i sit there saying half the time they don't even know what's wrong when you get into a and e so so us figuring it out is almost impossible but they'll hear something and the classic that they'll hear because it gets picked up on in their orals when they're doing their um you know their officer of the watch tickets is your patient comes to you presenting with a central abdominal pain and it moves to the lower right hand quadrant and they'll all sit there and go it's an appendicitis <laughs> <laughs> and and i say to them it could be because it looks like a duck and it sounds like a duck but it could mm. be a chicken in disguise. Mm. And are you good enough to recognize a chicken in disguise or aren't you? And, mm. and it's just telling them saying, it all sounds like something pretty obvious, but how broad is your medical experience and your knowledge to know all the other things that could potentially be causing pain in the right lower quadrant of the abdomen. Mm -hmm. So unless you get a really good story and pass that on, you could be taking somebody down the wrong treatment pathway um, by making assumptions too early. And that seems to really resonate with them um, as well. And you're right, it's it's very much taking the medical speak out and saying, right, I need you to use terms that make sense to you, not terms that are medical that you think is the right one. Um, because if they can tell the story properly, then the doctor on the end of the phone is going to have a much better chance of giving them the right advice rather than a few medical phrases thrown in that they recall from a course once mm -hmm. that completely change the dynamic of the story. Yeah, and, and I think you picked up on a really good point there was being able to tell that story correctly to a top side medical professional mm -hmm. uh, because even if they've gathered good information, being able to communicate that information is the next part of the skill, I would think, because if you can't communicate what you, you've, you've already taken of what you found from the patient, then you've lost that knowledge. Um, and I've talked to a few top side doctors and they've said it's probably one of the hardest skills to teach these people and, and how to clearly communicate what they're finding. Um, I don't know if you've, you've got any ex thoughts on how we can help people communicate a medical history when, they, when they're non-medical. Any, any, do, do, do you cover that area at all? Uh, we well, very much do. So the, the training that the Merchant Navy get in the way of medicine is is um basically laid out by the uh, standards of training certification and watchkeeping so it's an international regulation and we refer to it as stcw and it's a a building blocks sort of foundation of training where you start with basic first aid then you move into advanced first aid and then as you progress through your career you start to do sort of a, a medical care qualification but throughout that um we use structured assessment protocols um, but our handover template is very much the atmos sample process mm -hmm. so when we're training people to be able to pass on a really good history um, to a topside doctor we we make them work through an entire you know the checklist protocols mm -hmm. and how to take a patient assessment then we ask them to transcribe it into atmos sample and then hand it over to us okay um, and quite often what they do the first time is they'll They'll read you the bits that they think you want to hear. And you'll say, no, I don't. I just want you to read it verbatim, top to bottom, what you've written. And what's really interesting is when when they do it, it's so easy because I can sit there and go, I know exactly what needs to happen next. We're going to, this is your treatment plan, X, Y, Z. 
and refer ashore. And after that, we're going to consider medical debark and repatriation. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you hear a story told through the Atmistample protocols, it, it all makes sense because we know what we're going to be hearing. We know that they're going to get to that information. And one of the issues that we have in remote medicine is the connection, the communication connection. So sat phones can have delays, you can have interference on radios, and then you have that sort of, everybody's quiet and it's like, I'll start talking and they'll start talking and, mm-hmm. and you're both talking and then you'll both stop talking. Mm-hmm. And, and I always say to them, you know, we've all been there. And actually, if I know that you're going to give me an atmosphere handover, I will just shut up until you've finished. And then if I've got any further questions, I will ask them at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, if I don't know, then I don't, I don't know where this information's coming from. So if they skip bits, I'm thinking, am I, am I going to get that? Should I ask about it now? So it does make a very big difference. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Tell the story well. Yeah. So I think yeah, what I'm picking up there is um, when we're looking at that is make make sure we give people structure to to give them the ability mm-hmm. to to tell their story. You know, if we and and again, I think if we're we're all on the same song sheet, so the people receiving that information's got a copy of the same so, copy of the same song song sheet. Get that <laughs> one out, I, and they're using that that same copy. Then I think that's going to become so much easier, especially when things become a bit stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think as I say, many of the cases the probably record will be okay, but with the odd one where it's it's we're dealing with something critical and they've got to make good decisions and the, the team receiving that information has got to pick it so i think you're right the more standardized structure we can v- provide those people it seems to be the way forward um mm-hmm. yeah and i think for the person receiving that information it's important but for the person giving that information it's i think that's a calming effect because i would suppose part of the medicine we're trying to do here is get the person on board to be calm and feel they've got a level of control um definitely yeah yeah Yeah. and and we do you know I sort of talk to them quite a lot about that that sort of that feeling of panic and fear Mm. and you you try and take as much of it away as you possibly can but obviously you can't take it all away and I think you're absolutely right that when they tell you the story and you you repeat it because obviously you know we repeat it back to them to make sure that we've understood what they've told us and they hear it back to themselves they think, oh, that is quite structured. That does make sense to me. I've heard it back to me. Um, and it, I think it does help with that calm feeling. Just thinking about your communications, what you were saying there, though, and I, it was making me think, because with the passenger ships that we look after, we also have to do a lot of mass casualty training with them. And I remember one of the very first audits I ever did, and when I first started out, was on a mass casualty scenario on board a large passenger ship with over a 1,000 passengers. And the big breakdown in the whole system was the communications and the information that was being passed mm-hmm. and, and do you know what? it's one of those things I haven't thought about it for years and years and years and then it, when you were talking about that I just remember the difference it made having worked with them for a few years on that communications piece mm-hmm. how much better the outcomes were because it's you know it was all about how, how many casualties have you got at p1 p2 p3 mm-hmm. you know what's your transport priorities and things and none of that was being fed through. So everybody had a different number of casualties and you're like, this is this is not working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's to say probably a major part of what we're picking up here is that the structure of the assessment is good, but the more structure we're going to put in place, the better the communications and the better the mm-hmm. communications, the better the outcome. Um, Absolutely, it's, 100%. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting you talk about cruise ships. Um, I remember talking to a very senior 
she'd been an A&E consultant, very, very active basics doctor. And to finish her career, she was going to work on a cruise ship. And uh, I remember talking to, to her about it. And she said, this is the scariest job I've ever done. You know, because she said there was so much clinically coming at her. Um, everything from adolescent 16-year-olds, unplanned pregnancies to a, a large uh, geriatric population. And she was the doctor. And, uh, you know, she was an incredibly experienced doctor who, who was talking to. And she said, it's proper scary. Um, just yeah. just what was coming at you know that diversity of population on a cruise ship was was something she'd picked up on and the, and actually the remoteness that ship can be at times as well um, mm -hmm. with, with all the factors that the sea brings it's, it's a really really interesting one um, because you can have you have got these wonderful brilliant doctors coming to sea and suddenly they're going but I haven't got a CT scanner I haven't got this I can't refer to I can't and um, with the cruise ships that we look after, we do provide them with a 24-7 topside cover. So they've always got doctors on the end of the phone to, you know, to talk to and say, can I just run this case by you? You know, is there something I'm missing or is there a treatment that you would recommend that I haven't thought of? Mm -hmm. um, and I do I do think that's really important, that peer-to-peer -peer support, because if you put a lone doctor on a ship, some ships are so huge, they'll have several doctors and that's not an issue, but some most ships will only carry one doctor and perhaps a team of nurses. And the peer-to-peer -peer support is vital, really. Um, I think, you know, picking up on one of the things you said earlier about when you were in the military and you were a keen young medic and you went offshore and mm -hmm. for the first time and you were pretty confident mm -hmm. that, that you were okay. And I remember feeling exactly the same and just thinking, this is, this is okay, I can manage yes. this. And then suddenly that huge healthy respect for how little I know mm -hmm. kicked in. And I thought, no, I can't do this on my own. I have got to be able to speak to peers and you know professionals that are way exceed my level of knowledges. And mm -hmm. ever since that moment of realization, I've just thought, no, I've, I'm never gonna know enough to do yeah. my job. You know that I think I think that's really important, um, and and I, I agree. I went through that same thought process, and the the sort of resolution to that was I, I need to have access to information and people. Um, yes. I, I needed to whatever I needed. It was sort of probably before telemedicine when I when I was offshore, but I needed access to really good books mm -hmm. uh, because sometimes I could try and contact a topside, but you just couldn't get through sometimes. Uh, no. And what I found was whatever problem I thought I could deal with, I needed I needed to access information to be able to reference what I thought it may be or send me in another direction. So access to information was huge for me. But you're right, just have been able to talk to another medical professional, it, it's, it's, it just calms everybody down. Um, there's something well, it does, and, and there's always this need in us, this intrinsic need to try and help someone. And, and you're so desperate not to get it wrong. And sometimes you just have to say, I just don't know enough. I need to ask someone else. Mm. And that for me is something I actively search out in all the medics that I place on board ships is mm. I want somebody who goes, I am very happy at a very early point to call someone else and ask for help mm -hmm. because that makes me feel much safer. Yeah. Um, I think you're a safe medic. If you, if you know your limits and you're willing to ask for help at an early point, mm -hmm. I know, I know you're going to be safe. Um, yeah. Whereas those that don't, you just think, oh my goodness. I could, if you had called me earlier, I could have intervened and this could have been headed off before it became a problem. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's, especially, I would think, more so the maritime with the so if you do have to evacuate somebody, you've got, you, you need to know sooner rather than later, given the complexity of the logistics behind some mm -hmm. of these evacuations. So, yeah, you're right. I think um, 
a, probably a big point we can bring up in summary is what is one of the key things a medic should always try to be and or understand is what are your limitations and, and when and when should you be asking for help probably earlier than you think in most cases i would say you know err on the side of safety because you never you'll never get it wrong but what I don't say never get it wrong, but you'll you, you'll have less mistakes if you if you reach out earlier, I would think. Um, yeah, and, and I totally appreciate where you're coming from with the communications earlier on in your career. I had the same issues trying to get a shoreside connection could sometimes be impossible. Um, one of the things that's made quite a big difference to shipping is Starlink. Um, and that's definitely made connectivity more reliable. Um, and and we do very much encourage all the medics that we work with is to call early in a, in a situation we'd rather you called us really early, you know, even at the point where you're thinking, oh, you know, is this is this antibiotics or not antibiotics? We'd rather know at that point, because that's the point where if we get it right, we can actually avoid a medical evacuation or a divert of the ship, which mm. in the commercial world is hugely expensive and yeah. in the commercial sector of oil and gases is, is is millions and millions of dollars worth of um costs saved yeah, yeah. and I, even i think when you're looking at medical evacuations or oh, you're right the cost is huge but sometimes the risk is huge as well because mm -hmm. uh, often we're bringing those evacuations in an absolutely atrocious weather so yes. you are putting people at risk when you're doing it as well and i think that's something you have to think about so yeah, I suppose what we're bringing out from that is the earlier the better so we, we can get heads together and work the plan uh, definitely that's probably the, the, the I, I would think what, what what i'm catching from from what you're saying well i love what you picked up on there with the medical evacuations as well because so often we talk to people especially with trauma you know every time you move them they'll get worse because whatever process their body is going through is being disturbed by that movement mm -hmm. and the medical evacuation is definitely one of those you know that it's mm -hmm. one of the most terrifying things for somebody to get put in a basket stretcher and mm -hmm. winched up into a helicopter and then bounced around for mm -hmm up to an hour and a half before mm -hmm. being pulled out into a hospital in a foreign country where nobody mm -hmm. speaks your language yeah and and you can't underestimate how much impact that has on somebody's medical you know their physical condition mm -hmm. because their mental condition is deteriorating because they're frightened yeah yeah um so stability and reassurance very early in the game is super important in the yeah. evacuation process yeah and, and actually that, that thing that's a really interesting point in itself um a lot of the podcasts we've done with quite senior doctors in quite interesting rescue areas like cave rescue mountain rescue what what they often say to me uh and also talked to a few people who's been to multiple multiple casualty incidents mm. um and that what they often say to me is that sometimes most of the time when they're there they, they can do very little for the injury they've got so someday in in one case was a, a ruptured spleen and cave rescue he said mm -hmm. i couldn't do anything as a doctor but what i can do is give you reassurance um and that's something i believe every medic can give although you might be flapping underneath a little bit <laughs> um what 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 we found consistently been brought out by by, by very senior people who saying i had a very limited ability to give treatment i knew what was go was wrong but i couldn't do anything about it but mm. what i could bring to the table was the ability to have that stability and reassurance to the patient to say we've got this um and i think that's something i picked up there is so you're sending somebody through a medical evacuation which you're right a very scary experience um for mm. anybody going through that especially if it's it, it's an environment you've never been in before um for the medic to have that skill to say this is okay this is what's going to happen you'll be fine i've got this i think that that's a skill 
it should never be underestimated that that persona of confidence even yes. when underneath it might not be there you've got to externally put it, it probably express it I think we have this term that we use when we're training the seafarers in in medical care and especially when it comes to things like medical evacuation and, and stabilizing casualties is I just say to them you need to develop an inner monologue and that's where all your fears and anxieties live inside and outside you're cool as a cucumber mm. I said and you need to you need to practice that I said we will help and support you after the event but we need you to just own it during the event so that this person sees that at least the perception is that they are in capable confident hands mm. and yes you're going to be panicking underneath because that's that's what happens and that never really goes away I don't think it matters how experienced you are you know, you still have that element, don't you, when you know yeah. you're going to do an evacuation of thinking, mm -hmm. oh, my goodness, am I getting this right? Yeah. Have I missed anything? What have I done wrong? Are they stable enough to move? Mm -hmm. Have I got enough drugs to, you know, keep them through the transit? Is there enough oxygen in the cylinder? Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, you're having all those moments. But mm -hmm. outwardly, you're saying, right, everything's sorted. We've got our handover. We're going to go up and meet the paramedics. And uh, mm -hmm. you'll you'll soon be in, in a hospital um, in safe hands and yeah, so so important and just the flip side of that uh, a couple of the podcasts we did with TSU doc was actually talking to seriously injured people mm -hmm. and, and how they found treatment and what worked and what didn't work which I think is both relevant but every time we, we've talked to somebody that's been seriously injured it's the biggest thing they brought out is they wanted to feel confident in the person that was caring for them they just wanted to know that that person had control mm. they were calm and and they felt like you I, I now put my trust in you because I've now part of I've, I've lost the ability to care for myself because my injury. So I'm, I'm passing that that responsibility to you, and I need to know you've got this. Um, and the big thing they always bring out is that you can tell when people are completely in control and they're confident, and they they can also tell when they're not. Um, do you think that? Do you think that that confidence <laughs> and control that the person is perceived to have is that something that is a physical mannerism or is it the way that they speak to them do you think i, I think this it, this it's a good question i think it's a bit of everything um mm -hmm. and i and i can't i can't reference this but i was once told that 80 percent of communications is non-verbal mm. um and and i think you see that when you you look at people's body language and how you're interpreting People, how people communicate and it could be the, the overall communications I just seem to be next to that the scenario and being calm and and that could be a little bit of it verbal how you're communicating saying I've got this is it that simple hand on the shoulder to say I've got you which is more mm -hmm. physical is it the way you're talking to the wider team because the casualty is still listening in uh, I, I think there's a and again, I, I'm, I'm all, it's pure opinion, but I think it's that whole persona you bring to that incident to say to everybody, including the patient, but the patient will pick up on the wider communication, is that this is fine. Because um, that's what they want to see. But they, I think they pick up very quickly, or certainly from the, the two or three TSG talks we've done with seriously injured people, they pick up quickly when they're not confident as well. Um, Gosh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Mm. What a great, what a great perspective to have, though. Listening to the seriously injured and and mm. how they went through things. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's that's a great idea. Yeah, we we've done a couple. Um, one was with with, with my colleague James, who's our key account manager. A horse stood on him and split his pelvis. Uh, I listened to yeah. that one. Yeah. Uh, so, and James was all about really the first cruise. He said where he 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 knew they weren't on it that the injuries that he had that he had were probably out of their depth 
Mm. And, and that was getting passed across. But as soon as the consultant at A&E got them, he said she, he, he had complete faith. Yeah. Now, I think there's multiple factors picking into how those people are communicating that one did not communicate confidence and one did. Uh, there's a PhD somewhere <laughs> in this one. Um, I guess what you've got, though, I mean, you know, standing standing on his pelvis and, and cracking it open mm. is a huge injury. And it's not one that we're mm. any of us are seeing on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and how do you build that confidence and reassurance? Mm -hmm. Yeah. into somebody who has to go and deal with it mm -hmm. um and, and i guess that's very similar to where i sit is mm -hmm. you know a major event is probably once every five years for a ship mm -hmm. yeah um how do you build confidence and, and calmness into somebody when dealing with a casualty so that the casualty feels like mm -hmm. they're in capable hands mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a, and a, i don't know if this is a real answer to it but there is a feeling and i go back to probably what a couple of doctors say uh, and the specific one was of the cave rescue where they had something like a 50 hour, 52 hour rescue to bring a very seriously injured person wow. out. And he says, basically there was a limited, oh, okay, we could give some analgesia and there was things they could do, but actually from a definitive caring point of view, it was quite limited. But he said, the biggest thing was bringing calm to the patient mm. and to the scene and saying, I am the doctor clinically, I, I'm, I'm, I'm over. There was other bits of the rhetoric going on that weren't clinical, but the clinical bit, he had to basically say, I'm, I've got this and I'm in control and everybody needs to know I've got this. And he says the biggest thing I could bring was just that level of calm and confidence that this will be okay. Even though he knew the injuries he got, it might not be, but he had to get that persona across. So the way the it's team did It's very interesting, panic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I read I, an article recently and I disagreed strongly with it. Um, and it was written by somebody about first responses at road traffic collisions mm -hmm. and they were basically saying those first people that stop in a motorway pileup for example mm -hmm. um it doesn't you know it doesn't matter if they're doctors or nurses or if they're just first responders or if they're anybody you know so you know your doctor and nurse are, are just as useless as your first responders and i just thought no i disagree with that strongly mm -hmm. just because they don't have any medical kit to apply interventions to save your life mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that they're they're no less value and because because of that piece that you've just said it's that mm. right i can talk and i understand how to assess and i can reassure mm -hmm. and i can you know I, i've got the knowledge mm -hmm. to know what's happening here and and i just i disagreed with the way and perhaps it was a wording thing perhaps mm. it was the way the article was worded but it was basically just saying the only person you want is a first aider with a kit and I was thinking, I don't think that's strictly true at all. I think I think I I would feel confident with a, a medical professional with no kit mm -hmm. because at least they've got the knowledge. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. And it's, it's funny with doing the TSG talks that there are some lessons that consistently come out. Um, mm. And what I found is one of the consistent one is that the human touch is important. Um, I remember talking to... Um, He's a good friend of mine, a chap called uh, Dave Whitmore, a uh, former London Ambulance. But he, Dave, Dave's been to over 25 major incidents, uh, incredibly experienced and, and, and very good at what he does as well. And he was talking to me about one of the incidents. And I can't, I, it could have been 7-7, but I can't quite remember. But what he was saying um, was at one point he was dealing with a trapped person and all he could do was hold the person's hand through the entrapment. Mm. Um, and after the incident, when he was talking to the patient, he said, what do you remember? And their feedback was, I remember the human touch of somebody holding my hand and telling me I'm going to be okay. 
So there was no access medically to that person because they were completely entrapped. And all you could do was put a hand through the incident and, and touch Goodness their hand. Me. And But that was the feedback he got there. He said the human touch is actually something not to be underestimated. Yes, we have to back up with the clinical skill and working out logistics of evacuation, things like that. But I think what I'm, if I've if picked up anything from this series is that that reassurance of the medical person is important. And I suppose when we're looking at maritime medicine with non-medical people, it's still important for them to say to their, their ill colleague, it's all right, I'm talking to Topside, we've got a plan, I know what I'm doing, this is now what's going to happen. Your evacuation is going to be this, but don't worry. This is the people coming to go and come to get you who are competent. You're going to go up in this basket, mm-hmm. but the person with you has done this a hundred times and everything's been normalized. And I think yeah, yeah. it's an interesting skill, isn't it? I don't think it's the only one. There's no. so much more around it, but it's something that does come out a lot. So, so something to think about, I suppose. Definitely. <laughs> The joys of TSG talk were way off somewhere else, but uh, that's that's the, the beauty of the conversation. That's all really interesting. Yeah, it is. Absolutely no fun. idea how you're going to limit me now because I feel like we could chat for ages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is good, which is good. Yes. Uh, but just on that, um, what, what we often find um, is some of the best learning experiences um, is, is from something that's possibly happened in the past from your own experience. Are there any stories that you've got where you, you've maybe learned a lesson Um Good, good or bad, because they're, you know, they're all going into the learning uh, sort of arena anyway. And anything you, any stories that you would, you could tell where a specific event you brought something out from at all, or, or, or it was just an experience? Um, Gosh, it's such a difficult one, because mm-hmm. I have a tendency to want to learn from every single experience, good, mm-hmm. bad, ordinary, um, and do a lot of reflection on every case that I have to deal with that results in a, a disembarkation. Um, I think there's a couple of particular cases that stick in my head. One, probably from my military days, where we had, um, it wasn't medical, it was a, it was a mental health um, issue. And it was in the days when mental health wasn't something that was encouraged to talk about. Mm. And being ex-military, you'll understand that sort of man up and get on with it ethos Mm -hmm. that was present then. And I never liked that phrase, man up and get on with it. Mm. Um, It it didn't sit well with me. And we had a case and it was somebody who was having a severe mental health breakdown. Um, I can't diagnose this. I'm I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know, you know, what it was that caused it, but I know what triggered it. And from a learning outcome for me, it was we were so underprepared because it was just not a topic that we discussed because to be in the military, you had to be resilient and strong and not admit to any of those things. Mm -hmm. And although the outcome was good for the patient in the end, I think the way we got there was not and needed a lot of work. And, And it's one of those, I still reflect back on it now, and this is 20 years after the event, thinking, how did we how did we get to the point of not being able to do this properly for somebody you know it was you know I was at the point where I was being ordered to sedate and Mm. you know what it's like if you're ordered you you do Mm. and Mm. and that's the only time I've ever had to medicate somebody against their will Mm. in my entire career um so from that perspective I think it made me really look at how you integrate with a non-medical team because the majority of what I do I don't work within a medical team I work within 
a multidisciplinary team of deck engine, um, hotel staff, uh, all sorts of different people and all different nationalities and cultures. And it really made me look at how you put together a team and work within a team. So I think that was probably a, a great learning point for me is, first of all, why don't we do, why don't we talk about mental health? And secondly, why did the team not work? What didn't, what, what was it that didn't pull us together? And uh, funnily enough, it's going to go back to my main thread. It was communications is, is what I believe is that my learning outcome was that there was nothing communicated about mental health disorders in my training. Um, there wasn't anything in the leadership training about it. And that meant that when we actually got faced with it for the first time in my experience, we all just stood there looking at each other going, oh, I don't know what to do. And I was like, but there's nothing medically wrong with him. So I don't know what to do. Um, and I felt very helpless. Um, and I was the next of kin's main point of contact. And that was incredibly distressing. So I think a learning point from that would be be prepared for every eventuality, but also communicate with those that you're going to be working with. And I'm a massive fan of a tabletop to start with. Um, I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, but going back to the mass casualty, it's incredibly difficult to set up and run a mass casualty drill in real time. We have to do it. But the most important thing is before we get to that point, we should be tabletopping it and working out who's responsible for what. Mm. And when you do that process and you work it through from the worst case scenario backwards, you, you end up with a good outcome. And when I say good, I don't necessarily mean everybody lives and everybody's happily ever after, mm -hmm. but you end up with a, a team that are functioning at a high level together. Mm -hmm. um, so I suppose that was one that's always stuck with me. And one that I learned from that I think, again, it's, it didn't have a good patient outcome. The patient died, but it was the way that it was dealt with. So from finding the casualty on board in cardiac arrest to determining death, you know, and verification of life extinct, uh, through to the communications, the repatriation of the body, we had prepared for that eventuality, knowing that it was unlikely to happen. We had prepared for it and we'd done drills for it. We'd run simulations for it, um, including, you know, the doctor practicing speaking to the next of kin. Uh, and from a learning perspective, when we did our debrief afterwards and reflected on it, um, I think what we learned from it was there was probably space to tighten up on the paperwork, mm -hmm. um, which is fine. Everything can always tighten up on paperwork. But what I think I really learned from that was we prepared so in so much detail, right down to how are we going to look after the person that discovered somebody in cardiac arrest? Because that's a horrible situation and, and you must never discount the effect that that has on somebody who is not seeing that. Um, and has never seen it before. And, and we even had that covered, you know, so that was immediately dealt with. Um, and the long-term issues and, and the team that we flew out to support the crew and it was all in place. And it was no one person did that on their own. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I absolutely love about my job is I am a, a solo autonomous medic, but I have amazing teams around me 
and I know I can't do anything without them. So on my own, I'll do my best and it won't be good enough. But with them and they're doing their best, suddenly the good, you know, it becomes the best that you can do. Mm. Even with a poor outcome, you're still looking after everybody involved. Yeah. That was a really long winded explanation of what I was trying to say. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. And, and, and I think it comes across really well. And um and again, just picking up from that, uh, I'll agree with the mental health, health side of life to understand that the population you're going to deal with will bring these issues. Um, I've got, I came, had a similar experience when, again, I was very new to working offshore. Again, come from a military that was, yeah, man up, what's the problem? Um, I, I didn't have a family, didn't have any of that bandwidth of life right around me. And uh, I've suddenly got a father who's been bereaved in front of me. I'm thinking... <laughs> I don't know what to do here, you know. Um, yes, I've got sedation. I can I can get you a good night's sleep. I can get you off my platform. But how do I give compassionate care to that person for the next 12 hours before we we, we can get you home? Um, mm. And it was something I had no training on. And I, and I, I didn't have the maturity in life to deal. I mean, we, I think I dealt with it as good as I could. But, you know, when you don't have, you know, when you're a single lad, you don't have the family, you're coming out as a young medic, uh, you come from an environment which is man up, deal with it. Um, I think you should never underestimate the skills you need to deal with uh, mental illnesses, bereavements of people. On There's so many things can come through that sick bay door um, yeah. that you, and again, you, your preparation's got to be quite wide. Um, and uh, to an extent, a, a bit of jack of all trades, I would think. Uh, but yeah, the mental illness was something that really hit me quite hard. And I remember thinking. <laughs> you feel totally out of your depth, don't yeah, you? Yeah, totally absolutely. out of your depth. Yeah, and, uh -huh. and for me, it was a huge moment in my career where I thought, I definitely don't know what I'm doing here. And I can't, I can't do the right thing because I don't know what the right thing is. Mm -hmm. And, and thinking I don't want to be in that position again. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, and I think those key moments in your career are those sort of landmarks that turn you into a better medic because you it's part of that recognition mm -hmm. I just don't know enough yeah yeah I've got to get put you on that lifelong learning program yeah. doesn't it yeah <laughs> the, the other thing I picked up um and I thought was really interesting and that you're part of a wider team if if I think back to some of the experience of evacuating people from platforms probably fairly similar to ships but it's a real, it's, there is a little bit of clinical assessment, whether it's the, unfortunately, the bereavement you got there or a live person. It's actually probably 80% of what I'm doing is a, it's a logistical event of bringing management in place, health and safety in place, coordinating whatever asset I'm bringing, whether it's a helicopter or a ship, I'm taking them off on, um, making sure there's people to receive them on shore, making sure the chain of care is in place. What I used to find, I think what you brought out there is that you're in a wide logistic team um, mm -hmm. and you are doing the clinical bits and passing that information across to get those, to, to request logistics. But most of the logistics, you're not controlling. But if you don't practice that, nobody knows what you want. No. Um, yeah. And uh, again, it's stories, isn't it? But I, I do remember, again, I think I, I probably had a very busy life offshore by the sounds of it. <laughs> But I remember requesting an evacuation for a chest pain once, and I said I need a helicopter, but I didn't say I needed an, an, an empty one. 
So the helicopter <laughs> came. <laughs> so the helicopter came with 18 people staring at me as they opened the doors to the point I said, <laughs> we have to change. Everybody's got to get out and nobody was happy. Um, oh, no. So if it can go wrong, it will go wrong, I suppose. Um, but you're right. And if I had practiced that and I had got my communications better to say a chest pain equals a, an empty helicopter and not just a helicopter, mm. there's a difference, isn't there? But you can practice that in, in hindsight. Yes. Yeah. And I, I it's yeah. it's the part that sort of I think sometimes people want to to imagine that this career at sea as a medic is this really sexy, exciting mm. job. Um, and I, I do absolutely love it and wouldn't change it for the world. But at the same time, I don't want it to be a sexy, exciting job. I want mm. it to be safe. I want it to be planned for. Um, and you know one of the things I always refer to myself as is a gap filler I don't want any gaps in any of the processes because that situation where we had the death it was so seamless that logistical you know that the medics just dealt with the clinical and everybody else just fell in and did what they had to do and it all just seamlessly came together and I just thought that's how that's how I want to be that's how that's the team I want to work in is Mm -hmm. one that knows exactly what's expected of them mm-hmm. and they just get on with it and that feeling so, of of control of, we've got this it's not a great yes. thing we're dealing with but we're we are controlling this and that we're, we're, we're doing the very best we can with a horrendous yeah. situation yeah. yeah yeah and when you can debrief afterwards you can say everything we did was the best we could mm-hmm. uh, and we, we did all the preparation to get there and the outcome was positive and i think that's probably good for the teams you're dealing with because they're non-medical people and in itself that's a very stressful event not Many people see dead bodies these days. Um, so the non-medical people, it, it, it could affect them. But to know that they've done a good job, I, I think is important. So being able to say this was a positive outcome for what your actions were, it's, it's got to be good for your teams as well, I would, I would suppose. Uh, yes, I think so. And I think it goes some way to to dealing with the enormity of what they've had to go through. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's this start point, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Acknowledge they did a great job. Yeah. That it was the very best that we could do in a horrendous situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's let's see what we can do moving forward to support you in the coming weeks yeah. and months if needed. Yeah, no, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Just just moving on a little bit. So if you were, if somebody came to you and said, I'd like to get involved in maritime medicine, and you were to <laughs> say, here's two or three points that you need to go away and think about, what what would what would they be? What 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 advice? would you give oh golly maybe just one or two points okay um well I think probably the first thing I would say is regardless of how brilliantly qualified you are as a medic whether you're a doctor nurse paramedic offshore medic go and do a maritime specific course you'll find it clinically very basic but what it'll do is it'll introduce you to all the international regulations that we have to work to um and a lot of that is you know, you're going to be bound up by your registration as well about what you can and can't do on board the ship, off the ship if you go ashore. Um, And that will introduce you to all of that. And you do a lot of peer-to-peer learning on those courses. So you've got some brilliantly experienced captains and chief mates who who are at the top of the sort of hierarchy on board who will share their experiences. Um, And the peer-to-peer learning is always really beneficial for all delegates. So I I would always recommend that regardless of how qualified you are as a medic. Um, I think possibly (laughs) I wouldn't consider it if you don't have a a strong degree of resilience. It is a tough job. 
Um, there's a lot expected from you, not just medically, but administratively. Um, you'll probably remember that from your offshore days. You wear at least 10 different hats. Yes. <laughs> um, and you need to be fairly resilient to, to, to put your foot down and say, no, actually, clinically, I need to be on top for this particular case. So I can't do X, Y and Z that you would mm -hmm. normally expect me to do. So it's that ability to stand up and prioritize. I think you have to have a bloody good sense of humor. Um, some of the best times, some of my most memorable times working at sea were nothing to do with medicine. They were just the people and how much they made me laugh mm. and how I think anybody working within the emergency services understands that we have a slightly dark sense of mm -hmm. humor. Um, and in the military, it's very similar as well. And it's not that you need a dark sense of humor to work at sea. It's just that a good sense of humor will get you through because there are bad days, like there are good days. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the bad days, there's plenty of people who will want to pick you up mm -hmm. if you let them. Mm -hmm. um, but it usually involves humor. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, one, one, one of the best things we can always have is humor. Let's let's never lose it. <laughs> the, the, the day we do, it will be a sad day. That's That's for sure. And I think probably the final one on that is is research very carefully what what part of the maritime sector you're interested in, because they come with different challenges. So if you're talking about your A&E um, colleague that wanted to go and work on the cruise ships and was very aware of the demographic that mm -hmm. she would be dealing with, mm -hmm. um, you know, we the opportunities medically at sea are so varied. So, you know, cruise ship medicine is a totally different mm -hmm. game from offshore medicine which is totally different to tall ships or sailboats or super yachts. And it's just researching and, and knowing what it is you want to get out of your work. A lot of people send me a CV saying, I'm looking for a position as a doctor on a ship. And I'm saying, well, what is it you want? Do you need, do you need a, a career challenging position? Do you want something that's a, a nicer way of life with plenty of time to see your patients? Do you want the ability to progress? I don't know. I need to know what mm. your personal goals are. Mm. I think um, that's that's really important, isn't it? What mm. why why are you doing this? Um yeah. what, what do you want to get out of it? Because you're right that there's a huge diverse area that, that will put different mm -hmm. stresses on you, but will give open up wonderful opportunities as well. Um but understanding where do you want to operate within that yeah. diversity is really because you're right there. It's massive the differences that, that we're dealing with. Um, so I think that's really important because it is it's a, it's a very wide sector where we're, we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Hugely, uh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely mm -hmm. fascinating. Just just to be uh, before I summarise or try to summarise, um, <laughs> one question we ask all of our guests is: if no matter where you are or when you deploy, is there one piece of medical piece of medical equipment you would always have with you? And if there was, what would that be? Oh my gosh! Am I going to get in trouble if I say a sat phone? No, nope, you can, you can, you can have it. Yeah, you can. I can have, have it. You can, yeah, if that's the okay. piece. Of, yeah, I definitely want a sat phone because, as I've, that, I've alluded yeah. to, I just I don't ever feel like I know enough to be on my own in any situation. Um, if you've really pushed me, I would probably go for something like a triangular bandage or a decent trauma bandage because there's mm -hmm. not a lot you can't improvise with those mm -hmm. things yeah. to plug some holes or shore something up or, um, you know carry them through to the next stage of care <laughs> yeah no i i think um when you picked up on that point i think actually that's really important because when you are working remote you you, you you're always searching for access to knowledge uh because mm -hmm. a lot of the things 
I think you pick up when you're working remote. You don't. You you you're not. You you you're not the definitive knowledge on it is, but you mm. may be. You may be able to access somebody who is, and that might really really refine how you how you how you how you make the plan to to give that person optimal care. So it's quite interesting as we ask people that we we often we we get people who pick purely clinical equipment um, for where they're working. We get people who sometimes pick things that could give you a level of command. I mean, a whistle has been one of the the areas, one of the items somebody once picked because the, their background was major incident management. Uh, but we also have a lot of people who pick access to knowledge, uh, whether mm-hmm. it's a, a specific book they'll take with them or, or a sat phone, um, you know, anything. Uh, I'm trying to think. Um, there's a few other things on the communication side of life. Uh, but it's about being able to gain more information to bring into the environment that they're in. So it is interesting how people put it into blocks, but I think a lot of people working remote tend to go towards some form of equipment that says, I want, I want to be able to access more, more information. Yeah. Uh, which, which I think makes a lot of sense when you're working remote. That ability to access the information is really important. One of the things that's made a big difference, actually, to my practice is having access. um, I subscribe to the BMJ Best Practice Mm -hmm. um, and because it's available offline, it gives me a reference tool um, for the common primary health care issues with obviously your algorithms and and pathways for diagnostics and treatment. Mm -hmm. And that definitely helps because although Starlink is making comms better, not all ships and offshore installations are signing up to it. So you still have some pretty dodgy comms in some of the places that I have to work. And and knowing that I've got a, an information platform that I can access offline makes a really big difference. Then when you come back online, it just does all the updates mm-hmm. within, you know, the latest articles and publications and things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I think I think that that however it is that you're choosing to access more knowledge is probably key in the remote sector. Mm. And that 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 in itself is interesting, isn't it? Uh, especially when working remote, don't always re- rely on the technology. Mm. Um, if all your knowledge transfer is technology driven, I think you're you, you've got chances that it's not going to work on the day. Having the ability to work offline, I, I think, and access that information offline is going to be massive as well because systems go down. Um, it's quite interesting in the last podcast we did uh, it was a colleague talking about his response going to Turkey for the Turkish Syrian earthquake and mm-hmm. one of the problems they came across is that they brought some sophisticated equipment but the software they needed for it wasn't updated to the, the country they were working in so although they tested oh, it um, it wasn't it just it, it became incompatible to pay the were so they couldn't use the sophisticated stuff so they had to go back to more basic stuff so Technology will always have limitations and mm-hmm. risk attached to it. And I think accept it for what it brings, but I think always having that ability to work offline um, and a more, you know, pay, almost paper-based system, uh, mm-hmm. but the ability to to be able to access things when the technology does go down, I think remote is, is probably quite important. Yeah. So yeah. What I, reference book would you take? If you if you could only take one reference book with you then, what would you take oh, offshore? Jeez. I'm going to go back a bit because it's been a long time since... Um, uh, I've, I've been hands-on but the one book because I I realized my primary health care was what I had to work on because there was so much to come at me from the you know the acute abdomen was something it seemed to be happening all the time and and there's so many outcomes to that mm-hmm. uh, or, or the, the headache was always a complicated one yeah. um, and I, I think it was I think it was Davison's uh, which was a prime which almost like it was a GP's encyclopedia mm-hmm. uh, that I used to read a lot on because it 
I could, you're right. I think in trauma, I could get by with algorithms and I was okay with that. Um, you're never going to say you're good because that, I don't know how you define that, but I felt I was, I was comfortable with how I could respond given that I understood the algorithm and I could access it. But having a really good clinical text to take me through primary care was the one. And I think it was Davidson's was the book I used to go to. Uh, I'm not sure if it's still published at the moment, but that's the one I would probably take. Um, whereas, I mean, it changes. When I used to work in jungles in the military, it was always lecture notes on tropical medicine. So <laughs> yeah. It does change, doesn't it? Um, totally. I've got, I've got a whole shelf full of the Oxford handbooks, yeah, <laughs> depending uh -huh. on where I was going. <laughs> yeah, so I think it depends. But I, I think a really good reference tech in primary healthcare Whatever that is now, I say it's been a while since I've been hands-on, is what I would still be going for. Because that's the bit I will never have enough knowledge on. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, fascinating. So let, let me just try and sum up and see if I've picked up the main points. Because they've been up, it's been a wonderful conversation. And we, we I think we've really covered some some really critical areas that, that are really important. So one of the big things I picked up on was, if I think if we're training non-medical people, we, we should try and give uh, analogies as, as non-medical as possible. Um, so I think using things like, if you're going to take a history, think of it as being a jigsaw. So when they have to take that history, they're thinking, oh, I've got, I've got something I can get a hook on here. I can start the process. I'm going to put the outside on. This will be maybe my atmist or my ample, but I can start on the outside and they can start filling it in. I think getting information across the non-medical non people like that, they can understand it better. And when it does become a bit stressful, I think they'll default to that simple analogy to, to start functioning as good as they can, which was good. Um, I think what we talked on, and I found it really interesting, is the, the human touch and the ability to convey to your wider teams and your patient that you've got a level of control on things mm -hmm. is actually important. And probably an area we we could look at deeper sometime as well. I, I think we we've unearthed quite a lot of interesting what what is it that gives you the persona of being in control, even if you don't feel that you are? What is that scale that, that brings it out? I think there's a lot to be to consider there. Um, and again, Definitely. especially when we're talking to the non-medical people, how do we how can we train them to look calm? Mm -hmm. Um which I don't know if there's any great answers to that at the moment, but I think it's an it's something to consider because it seems to be an important part of, of medical care. Yeah. Um, planning and training, it's always, you, you, you're never going to waste time, especially working remote maritime work. The more work you can look at scenario-based planning and, and scenario-based training and working through potential eventualities to work out outcomes that you can then implement I think we'll never waste any time on that. And bring in your wider teams and make sure the management understands what you need as a medic. Make sure you've got all the, everybody could be involved in the logistics of whatever evacuation you might have to do. Make sure the whole team's involved because as you say, the medic's one part, but the evacuation is a wider part. Mm. Um, but yeah, any planning behind that and training, you're right. I think the full on exercise with all the, the shouting casualties and all the moolages, it's one way to do it, uh, but that should be the last thing you do. It's the yes. tabletops. It's the it's the conversations. Um, it's the it's the giving everybody an action card. It's the simple things um, that I think will make the difference. So yeah, that's. I think sometimes training. when when you go into those huge drills, they are beneficial if you've done all the planning first. Mm. But if you do that first and you haven't done your planning elements, then mm. you are setting people up to fail. 
and that yeah. doesn't then set the tone for where you want to go with this yeah i, I um, think that that's important i think the the, yeah. the big drill should have very specific outcomes but it should almost be the tip of the spear we we've we've actually solved all the problems and this is just uh, walking through it yeah walking <laughs> through it validating all the lessons we have learned when mm. we've had the first conversation we had the first table talk with the first deed we've we wrote the action cards we tested the action cards we tried a really small drill with no moulage nobody screaming and we worked the process and now we've gone for the big one and this is just fundamentally changed testing everything that has already been tested but mm. you're right i think you get so much more from the the simple conversations to your captain to say can i just talk about some of the things i will need in an evacuation with you and how i might request them like a helicopter needs to be an empty helicopter <laughs> you know but yeah if you have that conversation you don't have the problem you know because yeah. you've, you've worked through it and, and they understand your requirements so i think the simple things that that little bit of time on simple processes is probably hugely important. Hmm. Um, and I think the big thing I brought out from what you were saying is you've got to understand your population that you're going to deal with and the pure diversity of what they will bring to the table um, in trauma, in primary health care, in mental health, and, and just good social care. Um, it's going to be wide and diverse and you probably, you will not be an expert in all of it, but, but I think you have to understand it's coming. Mm -hmm. And then you need to understand what will be your tactics to deal with that when, when it walks through your door. Um, and, and what are your processes to either gain more information or work out what's safe and what isn't safe and how long have you got. Uh, but yeah, understanding your population and the pure diversity they will bring with them. Is, mm. and, and I think what you picked up from the, the tips she was saying to somebody going into it, that population will be very different from if it's a cruise ship to a tall ship to a luxury yacht the needs are so there'll be a base and, and your access to equipment and support as well would be very very different depending mm -hmm. on what vessel you choose to go on so mm -hmm. it's yeah the research is key into what you want to do yeah yeah and, and that probably is the the foundation of everything i can what i'm picking up in maritime medicine is that your research your preparation the understanding mm. of what you're dealing with your understanding of how to work a, a complex scenario is probably what will make you successful at the job you're doing if you don't yes. do that you might be in a bit, you might be on a bit of dodgy ground, I think. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, there's sometimes quite a lot of pressure to, you know, certainly on me to make decisions quickly. Mm -hmm. And my first question is, why does it need to be a quick decision? Mm. Um, you know, if it's an emergency, yes, that's not a problem. But if it's not an emergency, why do you need a quick decision on this? Mm -hmm. Because actually, you have to just, you just have to think very carefully. Um, before changing something and and I, I I would like you know if it's anything other than an emergency then I, I I would they would have to severely justify why they need a fast answer to something mm -hmm. yeah um because you take it away and and you know if I make a decision clinically that doesn't necessarily mean it fits in with the decision of the operations of the ship mm -hmm. and if I haven't consulted with that person then we're at loggerheads as to where the priorities lie. Whereas all I've got to do is say, right, I've got a clinical situation. I'm just going to sit down. We're going to have a conversation about it. Can we please get some plans in place for various outcomes? Mm -hmm. And I'll let you know where we're going to be in 24 hours time. Yeah. And yeah. when when that happens, um, it's a much better outcome because you've made the right decision with the right information, not a quick decision without speaking to the other interested parties, if you like. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so t take a breath, calm. Yes, take yeah. a breath. That was the best bit of advice I got as a baby medic when I first yeah. qualified. My mentor said to me, said, if there's an emergency, just take a breath. Yeah. Take a breath and count to 10. And just remember, C to E, C to E, C to E. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they, those are very, very good pieces. I've had someone very yes. similar. Yeah, very, very mm -hmm. good pieces of information. So, Liz, um, is there anything else I've missed on my summary that, that you could think of that, that you could add before we just conclude the, our TSG talk for today? Nothing. Nothing okay. that I can think yeah, we, of. We got there. Okay. Yes. Fantastic. Yes. Oh, fantastic. Well, look, Liz, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Uh, you brought out some fantastic points. Um, so... You know, we will um, we'll get this posted up. If people would like um, more information, uh, this edition of TSG Talk will be in all the podcast sites, so it's very easy to access. Uh, please like and subscribe. Uh, and if you can leave us a good rating, it always helps. That just helps the, the podcast be to be more visible to the wider population. So thank you again for, for everybody listening. Thank you again, Liz, for, for your time today. Uh, we'll be back soon again with another TSG Talk. So thank you, everybody. Thanks, Colin. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of TSG Talk. We hope you found the content of benefit. Should you have any questions or require additional information, please visit tsgassociates.co.uk.